This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're exploring a parallel universe Glasgow as we talk about Alistair Gray's Lanark with writer and biographer Rog Glass. Lanark is a strange experimental book that immediately thrusts the reader into a weird world with glimmers of familiarity. It's a novel with two stories that weave around each other but don't quite come together in an obvious way. The book is structured so the two stories are not sequential. It begins with the story of a man called Lanark, whose lonely existence in the city of Unthank is eventually disturbed when his skin begins to grow dragon scales. Seeking a cure, he ends up falling down a bizarre, fleshy portal to the Institute, a sort of hospital where the doctors seem to be former patients. This story is interrupted by that of Duncan Thor, who remembers his journey to become an artist, studying at the Glasgow School of Art and struggling to get by painting murals around the city. As Thor's existence becomes more and more strained, he succumbs to madness. Here we pick up Lanark's story as he escapes the Institute and tries to save the city of Unthank from destruction. Alistair Gray was born in Ridry, Glasgow in 1934. He began studying at the Glasgow School of Art in 1953, where he started writing Lanark. He graduated in 1957 and painted murals around Glasgow. Many of his murals have been lost, but some can still be seen round the city. Most famously, his mural at the Oran Moor Theatre is the largest public artwork in Scotland. Alongside his career as an artist, he wrote nine novels, five collections of short stories, and several works for theatre. He died in 2019. Rog Glass is the author of seven published books across fiction, the graphic novel, the short story and non-fiction, including Alistair Gray, a secretary's biography, which won a Somerset Maugham Award for non-fiction, and his new book, Michelle Faber, The Writer and His Work, published by Liverpool University Press in August 2023. He's a senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, and was the convener of the second International Alistair Gray Conference hosted in Glasgow in 2022. He works closely with the Alistair Gray Archive on creative commissions, academic work, and on building Gray's legacy internationally. For all the relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned, head to the description of this episode. I'm Graham Foster and I spoke to Rog Glass about Lanark by Alistair Gray in July 2023. I'm delighted to welcome Rog Glass to the 99 Novels podcast. Today we're talking about Lanark by Alistair Gray. Rog, thanks for joining us. How would you describe Lanark to someone who hasn't read it? Uh, thank you for welcoming me. Um, how would I describe Lanark to somebody who hasn't read it? Great fun and hard work in equal measure. <laughs> I think uh, it's a big, complex novel that at its heart is an extremely simple journey story but it's just very playful and presents itself in a way that makes it seem in some ways more complicated than it actually is. As Lanark has often been taught in Scottish schools, it's been now frightening teenagers for a long time because it's over 600 pages and it's got four books in the wrong order and, uh, and has interludes and index of plagiarisms, which perhaps we'll get to. But it presents in a way that looks like it will be hard work, but it's actually great fun. 
And and how would you describe the the story of Lano? It's a simple portrait of the artist as a young man, in, in part at least, which is rooted in Alistair Gray's own experience as a Glasgow School of Art student in the 1950s. Almost half of the book is set in that, it's almost like a traditional realist narrative about a young artist trying to make his way in, in the Glasgow of the 1950s which is beautifully written, but it's quite simple, really. What makes the novel extraordinary is the way that those are juxtaposed with two books of, it's almost like science fiction, supernatural, futuristic Glasgow. And although all the various different characters have other names and other places are given other names too, you can map the futuristic unthank, as it's called, onto the Glasgow of books one and two. The realistic parts are based on Gray's own youth and life. It's often, it was often the case that he'd get confused between his own life and things that he had put into Lanark. So similar were they in certain ways. And there are a few key early scenes of the book, for example, where Thor is drawing a picture and the way he seeks to hide the woman in the sack in the picture and that are directly taken from his own autobiographical experience. So he does very strongly draw upon that, but it's it's juxtaposed with this futuristic journey story, which is never explicitly said to belong to the other story, but we as readers can see that it is. How did you first discover Alistair Gray's work, and, and Lanark specifically? I moved to Glasgow. All, all it took was to move to Glasgow. Gray's Lanark is so ubiquitous in Scotland that if you move to any of its major cities and are interested in books, you'll come across Lanark within minutes. And this sounds you know, too simple to be true really, but it did genuinely happen that very shortly after I arrived in Scotland, somebody said to me, well, if you're going to live in Glasgow, you should really learn something about it. Here's this novel. And what's always struck me as quite curious in my lifetime as a reader and as a writer is, is that I've spent a large part of my adult life in Scotland where Grey is a huge, dominating cultural presence and Lanark utterly transformed the creative landscape for not only his own, his own generation, but for the generation after. Whereas he's kind of a curiosity in England or even some consider as a, as a footnote. So really just arriving in Scotland and being interested in books was enough. And then two things happened very close to each other. One was that I applied to take a writing course at Glasgow University about three weeks before Gray was appointed as a professor, it didn't last very long. <laughs> and in many ways, that appointment wasn't a great success, but it was utterly transformative for me because he was my tutor when I was writing my own first novel and then he needed a secretary. He doesn't type, he didn't He didn't type himself ever. Um, so I was then working for him and seeing him at very close quarters. So that's how I learned what a writer is, how a writer creates their own work. He also used to come into the pub that I worked at as an undergraduate. Uh, so he was kind of ever present. He would have his little rucksack, um, which he had tipexed his name onto, and he would walk up and down by his road in the west end of Glasgow. And um, anyone newly arrived to the city would whisper, I think that's Alistair Gray. So in a sense, my experience was very similar to lots of people coming from outside of the city to Glasgow. And that as almost as soon as you arrive, he's right there in front of you physically, but also the work it appears to be everywhere. Uh, you, you seem to tie... Lanark, uh, specifically, but also Alistair Gray, to Glasgow. Do, do, would you call Lanark the Glasgow novel? Um, there's loads of fantastic Glasgow novels, but what, what separates Lanark from the others is the time it was published and the impact it had. So it, he had been writing it for 30 years. Gray was an overnight success at the age of 50. And at the time, it was extremely rare that a Scottish novel would get attention in London or in the mainstream press. And that was something that had a big impact immediately. But also almost the entirety of the Scottish literary community knew that this book was coming and for many, many years. And so it grew up this sort of mythical status before it appeared. And that's before you look at what the novel is actually about, which is at heart, it's a city of how you, you create a Glasgow of the imagination. It's almost become a cliche up here, but the, there's a section in the novel where two characters, Thor and Macalpinar, talking to each other about the city of Glasgow. And one of them says, it's a beautiful city. Why do we not ever notice that? And the other says, well, because we have no experience of the city in our imaginations. You know, when you visit Flor Florence or Paris or New York, 
in real life, you've already done it many times in your imagination. We haven't created an imaginative Glasgow. And what was unique about the book, I'm always reluctant to use the word original, but what was unique about the timing and the, and the, the delivery of that book was that the thing it complained about, which was there being an absence of an imaginative Glasgow, the very publication of that book created the thing it was saying was absent and led to a huge renaissance uh, across all sorts of Scottish literature in, in the 10 to 15 years that followed and then certainly had a huge impact on the on the generation that came after that. And because it was so clearly rooted in Glasgow, I think it does stand apart for that particular reason. Your, your description of Grey's Glasgow and how Lanark fits into Glasgow made me think that Alistair Grey was also an artist and, and Glasgow is a, a city that is tied to visual art in a, in a way that not many other cities are. You know, there's Glasgow School of Art, there's Charles Rennie Mackintosh, mm. there's there's all sorts of connections to that world. Do you think Grey was able to become this sort of Glasgow novelist because of his interest in that other world as well? Well, that's a really interesting question. The very short answer is no, but but there is a very there is a very interesting way in which his visual art was part of what marked him out as a writer. The briefest way I can put it is that Gray was almost entirely ignored as a visual artist for almost all of his life. And nearly all of the murals that he made were either completely ignored or almost immediately knocked down. And Gray spent a huge part of his life as both visual artist and writer recording Glasgow as a disappearing city or as a changing city, where so much of it was being knocked down or changed beyond recognition. And... Um, because Gray chose to make visual art that was free and in public spaces, those were uniquely vulnerable, but there weren't a huge amount of muralists around at that time. And also his entire generation that came through Glasgow School of Art um, came up in a period where it was almost impossible to make a living as an artist in Glasgow, particularly if you chose not to go to London. And so Gray often felt that this got in the way of his development and when he started to have the opportunity to publish, that's when people really got to see his visual art um, because it's so embedded in the way that every single page is laid out. The, the visual art and the text are always in, acting in conversation with each other. But it was only about in the last 10 or 15 years of his life that the visual art reputation started to catch up with this blossoming reputation as a writer. And he was almost ignored not even just in European or UK art but I mean in Scottish art as well was considered a footnote until about 10 years before the end of his life and now if you walk through the west end um, of Glasgow really anywhere within 10 or 15 minutes walk of his his old flat his visual art dominates it's there's a huge mural on the subway station that was local to him the biggest free-to-access artwork in Scotland is the Moore Auditorium, which is a large-scale reproduction of all of his other knockdown murals, which is like a mixture of the Garden of Eden and uh, contemporary Glasgow. And so he's now very visible. And so people coming to Glasgow now might think that things were always that way, or in fact that the visual art kind of enabled the literature in some way, but it was actually the reverse. There are ties between Lanark specifically, and for example, you mentioned the Moore there. That mural is kind of described or, or prefigured maybe is a better way of saying it in Lanark yes but but you say that was based on previous murals yes so the he spent four years Alistair Gray spent four years for free creating a vast mural in Greenhead Church in Bridgeton in Glasgow and that was knocked down when the motorway was built through the middle of the city which also meant that Gray had to move like these were utterly transformative events for his uh, life in Glasgow, not just at the time, but for many, many years afterwards. And Gray was famously a great recycler of his work. So whenever he felt that something had been lost, he wanted to recreate it. And although there are some photographs that survive that were published in Gray's A Life in Pictures, which is like a, an autopictography, which is absolutely fascinating across his life's work. Although a few of those photographs existed, there's no record of that mural and several of his other murals were knocked down too. So there are, you get these motifs in grey, some of which are within versions of Lanark as well. I'll just give you one example, which is Adam and Eve. Adam, who is black, and Eve, who is white, and they're intertwined, naked, looking up at the sky. That's in Lanark. It was in the Greenhead Church mural, and it's the central motif of the Moore Auditorium as well. So there are lots of new elements in that mural. It is vast 
there are lots of nods to Lanark throughout. And anybody who's read Lanark and then goes to visit the Oren Moore Auditorium will start to see parts of that book hiding in the, in the ceiling above them, which is quite a stunning experience. And, and you mentioned that you worked for Alistair Gray and wrote a biography of him. It's called Alistair Gray, A Secretary's Biography. How did your personal connection to him inform the way you read his fiction? It definitely informed my sort of sympathies when I was reading his fiction and because so much of his work was autobiographical and I was also his biographer, you've always got that in your mind to an extent, although you have to be guarded about that as well. I asked Alistair if I could write his biography while I was his secretary and it was a bit of rank opportunism really. He always said that, you know, if there's something you would like to see exist in the world, it doesn't exist yet. Even if you have selfish reasons, you should still go for it. <laughs> so I was quite open with him from the beginning uh, about not just that I wanted to do a biography, but I also wanted to do it as a series of portraits. I, I felt like I had things to say about the fiction, less so about the visual art, because I was quite a young man when I wrote the book. and I, I was very conscious of not being an expert on the visual art, but I felt like anybody really could write a biography that touched upon each of the key books and talked about the basic biographical events of his life. But what I felt I had special access to that nobody had really done yet was to portray what it was like to be in a room with him and to be just utterly dominated by his personality of this huge eccentric personality like very very generous very humble but also really struggled to operate in the real world in some pretty basic ways he's really fascinating but i felt like sitting there quietly as he did his thing uh, with me backgrounded and him the foregrounded character i felt that didn't exist yet, but I was confident that in Scotland, at least way off into the future, that would be a useful thing. So I thought I'd identified something that probably nobody else had done yet. Um, and so the book was done in that spirit. It doesn't, it attempts an objectivity with the writing and is critical of some of it um, and celebrates some of some of the other books. Uh, Poor Things in 1982, Janine in particular, uh, also The Fall of Calvin Walker. But what made the you know, if the book had any value, it was because it interleaved these portraits of Alistair, either watching him paint, driving him to a friend's funeral, uh, following him around at events, observing the way that other people looked up to him whilst also looking down at him and laughing at him at the same time, talking to him about the war, uh, all, all these things that became like mini scenes, portraited scenes within the biography. And those portraits are a sort of quite a personal way of writing a biography, I suppose. Yeah. How did Gray react to that that style of writing? Oh, it was great fun um, <laughs> uh, and quite spicy at times. But, you know, Alistair wasn't putting on a show when he said that he was genuinely not defensive about somebody writing his biography and, and being critical in certain ways. Like, I was unashamedly adoring in certain ways. I mean, I was, there were 46 years between us. I was just starting out as a writer and I felt I had this incredible special access to somebody who was really was changing my life. And I, I thought you couldn't really do a book about that while attempting to hide it or pretend it away. So I tried to make an asset of it. I said that I was subjective and in places the book is, is unashamedly loving. Um, but I hope that by making myself the sort of butt of the jokes or the background the character and having most of the focus on him, that would encourage the readers to be sort of in my position most of the time. And I, I hope that that would help readers feel like they were getting closer to Alistair the way that I'd felt like I was in some way getting close to him in, in the room. But it's important to say, I don't think I ever felt I had any anything like a special relationship with him in any way. He was much, much more important to me than I ever was to him. From his perspective, he was more concerned about the book being like a hagiography he insisted on not reading it until it was published and he didn't want to control it at all. And then he wrote this very playful review in The Guardian, um, which was typically great, like, uh, this surprise review. Ta-da! Uh, so they published two reviews of the book biography on the same day and on the same page. And on one side was the standard reviewer and the other one was uh, Alistair's response to the book. But even that I thought was very fair and very charitable. And um, there was a small amount of griping about some relatively small things but it wasn't something that got in the way of our relationship 
and we agreed not to do like events together for a couple of years but then towards the end of his life we started doing more together and remained friendly always i used without any exaggeration it's absolutely the you know the, the gift of my working life totally transformed my own work and my opportunities at the same time reading those reviews or or alistair's response to your book it seemed quite contentious seemed yeah. a little bit bad tempered but i i guess reading it sort of cold and not not knowing is you don't get that that sort of angle on the relationship between you two maybe not but then also like he he knew who he was talking to and he was more concerned that people might think it was an inside job so he selected a few things to be gripey and grumbly about but that's not really how things played out between us and there are a couple of like really small things that he wanted to correct and one or two things that sort of pointed to potential misunderstandings but my belief even to this day is that some of that was performative but it was actually quite useful to me at the time not to be seen as something that you know somebody who was in Alistair Gray's pocket and presenting him in this sanitized way because the book was critical as well as loving and it was certainly the you know the biggest assessment of his work yet and he said he wouldn't commission another one and um, so it's the only one that stands from his lifetime and i think it would have been problematic had he come out and said oh this is really lovely <laughs> i i feel like i read it in a slightly different way because um you know there's 20 25 years of, of a relationship there and i felt like it was coded in certain ways but i definitely found it useful at the time that he came out with this spiky apparently grumbly review that didn't actually dispute any of the major things that i wanted to say in the book like for example does it really matter if i got wrong where he went on holiday in 2005 no not really but it's not like he was saying there was some kind of fundamental dishonesty at work or that i was wrong about anything substantial going back to to lanark we've talked briefly about the structure of the novel the the different styles of writing in the novel there's sort of realist bildungsroman mixed with you called it a sort of sci-fi rendering of glasgow but to me it, there was a sort of high fantasy element as well yeah there absolutely is yeah you know with the the sort of dragons and people turning into dragons and that sort of thing is straight out of dungeons and dragons type of uh yeah it's awesome. uh, world how, how did those two parts of the novel how do they connect how do they intersect and how does the strange structure of the novel affect how we interpret the connections between the i'll say two part two parts because there's two distinct styles of writing yes but four parts of the novel yeah really interesting question well gray doesn't make any conventional attempt to glue the two parts together he juxtaposes them and makes implications and then there are certain sections in the middle where the author speaks and god speaks and it all gets very playful but largely he just puts the two of them next to each other and we work out the thor in the first lifetime becomes lanak in the second lifetime and that these are two radically different takes on on the glasgow of the the past even the futuristic one is based on elements of glasgow's past right down to the smog you're absolutely right about fantasy elements being key as well as sci-fi elements and dragon hide which is an important part of what happens in the story was based on gray's like terrible terrible eczema and his skin's his skin reaction and the way that he damaged himself uh, and was unable to stop that as a as a younger man interestingly i think gray's eczema took a 30 year holiday and then returned to him in his old age around the time that i knew him um, but it did disappear for a chunk of time but it had such a big impact his asthma and his eczema on the way that he experienced the world around him as a child that he reproduced these in outsized outlandish fantastical ways uh, in the novel so there's no you know simple easy to describe attempt to make sense of why these two radically different stories are told together but partly through the unified illustration that goes throughout the novel and partly through the index of plagiarisms which i can explain it does still feel coherent and it's the tension between these two radically different takes that i think provides the book it's it's magic the one other thing i'd like to say at this stage is connected to the index of plagiarisms because i think that helps to unite the book if you're asking about it structurally gray is 
spent his entire working life pointing to where he got his ideas from, which is why I think it's entertaining that Anthony Burgess, his first line on, in the 99 novels Lanark review is, a big and original novel has at last come out of Scotland. Gray was very pleased by being reviewed by Burgess in this way, and it was and it had a huge impact on his own writing life, the fact that Burgess liked Lanark, but he would never have agreed that it was original. In fact, he, he, he goes out of his way in multiple occasions, including the Index of Plagiarisms, which is literally a list of what Gray is saying that he has stolen from other writers. Uh, it's an alphabetical list on either side of the page. He's doing that as a way to kind of declare influence, but also to try and make the book cohere because it is so disparate in lots of ways in the way that it is delivered. We'll talk about the the plagiarisms in in more detail, I think, later. But I think the one thing that I noticed that connected the two parts are the autobiographical aspects of the characters of both Thor and Lanark, who are the protagonists of each section. There's Duncan Thor in the realist section and Lanark in the fantastical sections. Both of these characters seem to be drawn from different aspects of Grey's own life. Would you say that's that's a fair thing to say? 100%. Gray was also always an autobiographical writer and always using various different outlandish masks in order to be able to clearly demarcate between his characters. But you, you can read Thor and Lanark as being slightly different versions of Gray himself, undoubtedly. And he's quite explicit about that. If you go to his diaries in the National Library of Scotland, even before he started seriously writing it as a teenager. And remember, this is a book that takes took 30 years to come together. He always had the idea of doing an autobiographical life story, which took the city of Glasgow and made it a place of the imagination. The way that he eventually managed to do that was by creating Lanark as well as Thor, but they were two different versions of himself. It's worth saying that these sections were written at very different times of his life. And that first of all, the Thor section came and Gray tried to get a, a book deal for this in the 1960s. And he was turned down by Curtis Brown Literary Agency, who said nobody could possibly be interested in reading a novel about a provincial town like Glasgow. You know, this is a realist novel about Glasgow. Who wants to read about Glasgow? And although Gray was certainly annoyed by that and disappointed, he did go away and transform the book. So as it then, in a sense, went way beyond Glasgow, or at least imagined Glasgow in radically uh, different ways, which weren't just simple, you know, traditional naturalism, as Burgess describes those early sections. We've talked about how this is a novel about Glasgow, or, or at least a Glasgow novel, if those two things are distinct from each other. The two cities in the fantastical sections are called Unthank and Provan, which I sort of loosely imagined Unthank being Glasgow and Provan being Edinburgh. I could be wrong in that. But also in the in the realist sections of the novel, the imaginary bleeds over. So Grey uses a combination of real and fictional places. At one point, Duncan Thor and his family go on holiday to a place you can identify if you know Scotland, but the name of the place, I forget what the name of the place is now, but it's a fictional name. Why do you think Grey does that? And do you think that is a conscious connection in the realist sections? to the sort of allegorical sections. Yeah, I think it's a conscious decision. It's something that he repeated again and again across his visual art, as well as his fiction and his nonfiction. He was always mixing the real and the unreal. He could barely help it, really. You, you could say that he had realist stories and fantastical stories and a mixture of the two, but he was always really moving between the two modes. If you look at one of the frontispieces for Lanark, which is based on the Abraham Boss Leviathan illustration from 400 years beforehand, the Thomas Hobbes Leviathan, which, but it was a sketch by uh, Abraham Boss. And Gray does his own version of this for one of the frontispieces of Lanark, but he, as he so often did, resituates the work of another artist in Scotland, but doesn't just do it in Scotland. He also takes the opportunity to collapse Scotland and to invent new places in amongst the real ones. And this is his way of trying to make Glasgow, a city of the imagination. That illustration I'm describing is, in fact, is supposed to be a representation of all Scotland, but it's not to scale, and it includes all sorts of impossibilities as well. He had this obsession with what he called bent perspective when he was at Glasgow School of Art, 
was essentially just a, a reaction against what the teachers were telling him to do about how to represent perspective in a single picture. And he didn't like being told what to do, as, as many of us don't. Um, and so when told to have a single vanishing point in his pictures, he often insisted on having two or three, and which created this thing that he described as bent perspective. And you can see it again and again and again throughout the visual work. But what I feel I can see in Lanark is the same thing, but just in text. So you get lots of sort of straightforwardly recognizable, real things from Glasgow or from Scotland, but you also get it mixed in with all of these impossible things, at, you know, at strange angles, if you like. We've talked about Lanark as a Glasgow novel, but Burgess identifies Grey as the, the best Scottish novelist since Sir Walter Scott. That's a direct quote from 99 Novels. How does this Scottish identity present itself in the novel? And, and do you think Grey identifies with that identity and other Scottish writers? He's certainly highly aware of the tradition of Scottish writers that came before him, and many of those are evident in the index of plagiarisms. Although even that is playful. You know, there are two references to Robert Burns and the Index of Plagiarisms, and all they do is to draw attention to the fact that there are there is no obvious influence of Robert Burns and that this in itself is suspicious and readers, you know, should think less of the novel because of the absence of Burns's influence. Uh, so even that is a game. But Grey had a huge awareness of the Scottish writers that had come before him and often in his non-fiction writing wrote back to those writers. He considered himself an old-fashioned modernist who was essentially copying the ideas of Scottish writers that had come before him. But he was also determinedly outward-looking and was in some ways you know, more defined by his socialist, by old-school socialist principles and, and view of the world than he was by anything limited to Scotland. In, in, a, in a sense, because throughout Gray's writing life, people kept saying that he was too Scottish for the English, that painted him into a corner for a little while anyway, although not always. He felt like he was writing Glasgow because that was the place that he knew and he want, he, it was like a, a place that he could never exhaust for ideas, but also because he wanted to do for Glasgow what he felt you know, Dostoevsky could do for St. Petersburg or Charles Dickens for London. He, it felt That felt natural to him. But I think there was more, I'd say if I had to choose, maybe more of a close association to Glasgow and a Glaswegian lineage than a Scottish one. I, I don't like to choose. <laughs> when I was reading it, I was I was sort of struck by how broad. I mean, we'll talk about the the list of plagiarisms next, but I, w I was struck by how broad the influences seemed to be, and I saw a lot of influence from, for example, American novelists in there. The most obvious one that sort of leaps out is Thomas Pynchon in the sort of no-holds-barred presentation of, of sort of allegory and fantasy. Mm. But we've mentioned the list of plagiarisms, as we've been calling it, towards the, the end of the novel. Burgess's review suggests an influence is Finnegan's Wake mm -hmm. by Joyce, although I would say Burgess ties pretty much every novel he reads back to Joyce. <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't know that. You'll know better than me on that score. I'm over-exaggerating, but it does seem to come back to Joyce a lot. In terms of the list of plagiarisms, what is this doing to us as readers of the novel? And to, to what extent does it make this novel about other works of literature? I do have something to say there. I should say first that Gray was certainly influenced by Joyce, but he saw the realist sections as being more like a portrait of the artist as a young man in Glasgow. In terms of what the index of plagiarism does for the way that we read the book and how we receive it, this is clearly rooted in Gray's first ever short story called The Star that he wrote in 1951 while on holiday, on a family holiday on the Isle of Arran in Scotland. And he came up with what he thought was his first original idea. He was hugely excited by this. Here is my first original idea. He wrote the story, which is only three pages long, illustrated it. It was published in 1951 in Collins Magazine for Boys and Girls. I'm sure you're a subscriber. But um, the key thing about this story and how it relates to Lanark is that Gray, for about 48 hours, was absolutely dizzy with the, the belief that he'd come up with something all of his own until he realised that his story was rooted in elements from The Crystal Egg by H.G. Wells, which he'd only read a week before, and of course it was. But at that stage... Gray could have said, well, that story isn't mine, it belongs to Wells, or could have made an 
an asset on it and he chose to do the latter and then spent the whole of his artistic life kind of celebrating the influence of others and not seeing it as something that somehow reduced his own work but rather that that helped to build it uh, and certainly not something that affected its legitimacy now if you look at the crystal egg by hg wells it's a seven thousand word short story which has got loads and loads of elements in it that aren't in gray's story the star and the star is set in glasgow it's about a boy in a tenement who swallows a star in, in, in his classroom and there are of course lots of things that are unique to gray there that couldn't possibly have been taken from the crystal egg but gray believed that he was making new creative work creatively responding to artworks that already existed and then making them his own but that he wanted to declare that influence now gray was 16 when that happened he was 51 when lanik was published but you can map on a lot of the textual work to the same idea and also the visual art gray's faust in his study in 1958 for example uh, is a creative response but the faces of the characters are all people that gray knew in glasgow for example there's, there's lots and lots of examples of this but in a sense what i'm trying to say is that the index of plagiarisms is just a continuation of that approach that we can understand what we're reading better and appreciate how making works better by acknowledging influence so that's partly what he's doing in the index of plagiarisms but he's also just mocking about i mean and this is something that irritates some readers of Lanark, and I can completely understand why. He's just having fun. Um, so he, in amongst you know some of the greatest writers of the last few hundred years, he puts in friends of his, he puts in virtually unknown writers from Glasgow in the Index of Plagiarisms. The Index contains an entire short story by James Kelman, who was at that point utterly unknown. Uh, Tom Leonard, Agnes Owens, Joe Noor, writers that he'd spent decades supporting but who we also got ideas from and um, so it's a it's several things at once i think it's a statement about the art of a creative response and celebrating influence rather than seeking to be you know, present yourself as being totally unique or original or not being in debt to anybody that was gray's politics it's partly that and it's partly to help what is a very disparate novel cohere in some way and it's also partly just having fun yeah, I, I think also the the use of the word plagiarism is quite interesting. Yes. I've forgotten who said it, but some critics said that an influence is something that you hope someone notices, and a plagiarism is something that you hope someone doesn't notice <laughs> if you're a writer. Yeah, but calling it plagiarisms is saying, look, <laughs> look, these this is the list of my crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I suppose if it was coming out in the twenty first century, we would say leaning in or like owning uh, uh, that element of what you're doing. Uh, but certainly by calling it plagiarisms, that was no accident. Gray knew exactly what he was doing there. It was almost like he was pointing the finger at himself. But of course, when the novel was reviewed, people called it like original and unique anyway, when he would say, look, I stole all of my ideas out of like, Lewis Carroll books that I read when I was eight or something. And of course, people completely ignore that, which they're in, totally entitled to do. But Lanark is routinely referred to as unique in Scotland and original when in fact he's gone out of his way to as you say not just say influence but to say plagiarism it's a sort of unique thing for a writer to do to be honest about their creative journey through literature and that is what every writer does but only a very few of them admit yeah and you know there is some honesty there but there's also some dishonesty at work too you're often doing both at the same time in that in many ways, the index of plagiarism is unreliable. There are multiple kind of subsections as to different types of plagiarisms. You've identified yourself that the word plagiarism is problematic. And in some cases, he's really just including people because he doesn't want to leave out his friends. He's trying to create a sort of Glasgow literary community within Lanark, regardless of whether these people influenced him or not. So it's not completely honest either. And there are just some jokes in there. You know, there are some references that lead to other references and then lead back again. There's a sort of trust that some readers come to the index of plagiarisms where they might not even read through it, but they just assume it's this factual thing. And then if you read it really closely, you'll notice that some references lead you around in circles 
there's reverence to the Gaelic writer Angus McNuckle, who was there under two different names. Again, that's somebody from his generation, his literary community that he wanted to make present in this vast novel, which was trying to create the Glasgow imagination. So that's quite a common grey trick that he is in some ways being earnest and honest, but also being dishonest and playful at the same time. You mentioned that some people don't read, they just take it as as read that Gray is being honest about his list of influences here and they don't read it properly. But I would say that anybody picking up Lanark after listening to this should definitely read the list of plagiarisms because it's just so much fun. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's great. And in a way, you could read it without the rest of the novel and still get most of the jokes. Definitely. It's a text within a text. And also, because Lanark is such a big book and and covers multiple serious subjects it, it and because it's weighty it's sometimes talked about as being heavy and humorless it, it's not that people directly accuse it of being humorless but it's just that the humor in the book rarely gets a look in whereas in fact that's absolutely integral to all of gray's work and the decisions that he takes about the way that the text and the visual are in conversation with each other the various multiple voices that are in many of his works kind of undercutting pretend editors, pretend indexes, fake erratum slips that go in first editions, uh, famously the erratum slip that says this erratum slip has been inserted by mistake. You know, Gray was often having fun and it's not irrelevant that he didn't have his first book published until he was in his 50s and then all of a sudden he had all this opportunity to publish and he did that in a playful way. Um, so there's plenty of humour hiding in Lanark. And yes, I agree with you. Absolutely. You could just read the index as a text on its own if you wanted to and have a great time. Also, saying that humour's hidden in Lanark, I think that's true. But there are some desperately funny passages. Within Unthank, there's a sort of hospital that the characters get to by going down this sort of throbbing tunnel that's like an anus, which is... <laughs> Uh, extremely odd and weird but very funny and if they go down with their glasses on or something <laughs> or with metal or something like that they don't get out all the way and and that sort of thing and it's for some reason the anus jokes never make it into the reviews but um <laughs> it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's not there yeah well, i mean there's so much about the unthanned section that is slippery in terms of time and space and it's got so many nods to previous books in that field, whilst also being rooted in Glasgow humour in, in all sorts of interesting ways. It's just part of the reason why it survived, I think, is because it is so many different things at the same time. And you can read the book in so many different ways. There's so much hiding in it. Sure. And one of the ways you can read it, you mentioned Gray's politics a couple of times, but it struck me that Lanark is a deeply political novel, certainly in the final book, when Lanark, the character, gets elevated to political office. But what do you think the political message of the book is, if it indeed has one, of course? I don't think it has a straightforwardly political message, but I do think that all of Gray's work is somehow rooted in Ridry, which is the part of North Glasgow that he grew up in. It was one of the first housing estates that was built after the 1928 Weekly Act, which was like the major socialist... Uh, legislation passed with that Labour government and he saw Rigri as being this kind of little socialist utopia uh, where he was raised in the library and everything was free and everybody had work around him and he felt there was a sense of justice and in the way that that mini society worked and you can map those experiences onto his politics for the rest of his life. There's certainly a enduring interest in the value of a kind of old school socialism that he felt declined after the you know, particularly after the second world war but you can see that across all of the works really so that's one thing that lanark has in common with other, gray's other major novels you can see it most explicitly maybe in uh, the again very funny very experimental very playful novel 1982 janine famously gray stated that the book was already out of date by the time it was published because it was 1984 by then but that's about somebody in he was alienated by Thatcherism. He was drinking himself to death in a, a Scottish hotel and includes all of these sort of huge comic, tragic rants from this, the perspective of a Scottish Thatcherite. Gray's politics are all over that book, but he just doesn't necessarily present them in straightforward ways. And there are certain things that you can see once you've read multiple books, if you read them against each other, maybe. 
I'm not sure that it's, it's most obvious in Lanark, except just to be able to say that you know, it's an example of where somebody's corrupted by power, even when they are desperately trying not to be. What's interesting about Lanark, I think, as a character, is his earnestness. It's like deeply serious, earnest attempts to be able to achieve something, but that, that approach doesn't really work for him again and again and again. And once he's in a position of power, he is like highly conscious of the damage that he's doing to others, whether it's Rima or any of the other, you know, central characters in the story, or even the peripheral characters. You know, he is doing damage even while he is trying not to do damage. And that's how Grey often felt in his personal life as well, though obviously in a, a radically different context to the Institute in, in the novel Lanark. Lanark is a very complex book. It's a book that rewards close attention. It's a book that I think everybody could get something out of. But what do you think the legacy of the novel is? Are there any writers working today, particularly in, in Scotland, whose work is influenced by Grey? I'm always really reluctant to make big generalisations, but I'm really struggling to think of a major writer from Scotland for the last 30 or 40 years who hasn't openly declared the influence, serious influence of Grey, either as a you know previous mentor to their own writing. I'm thinking of somebody like Jackie Kay or Ali Smith or just as somebody who transformed the Scottish cultural landscape and so therefore had an impact on what others felt they could then do, whether that was writers like Edwin Morgan, the poet, uh, Liz Lockhead, who went on to be Makar of Scotland, in fact, as did Jackie Kay, um, even crime writers like Ian Rankin, who were hugely influenced by various of Gray's approaches and who sort of knew him personally as well. Bernard McClaverty, the great Northern Irish writer, who's been based in Glasgow since the 1970s, Andrew O'Hagan, Within Scotland, his influence is huge. I'm forgetting other major writers like Janice Galloway, who was of a younger generation, uh, A.L. Kennedy. Uh, many of these writers actually contributed to Gray's own book of prefaces, the big non-fictional history that he published in the year 2000, which was impressively 18 years late <laughs> being delivered to the publisher. But so many of these writers were directly or indirectly involved with Gray in some way, all were mentored by him, all were supported by him. And certainly he helped to change the cultural landscape that had an impact way beyond just literary or, or visual art. Out in England, it's harder to say. There are writers like Will Self and Jonathan Coe, who have been longtime supporters and who have supported you know, the influence of Gray's work. He's been extremely widely translated, but I think more as a cult writer and has never quite been embraced in England. So much so as when the BBC did a big documentary for Gray's 70th birthday and then they redid it for his 80th. Gray dressed up impersonating an interviewer, an interviewer who was hostile to himself, and asked questions of the real Alistair Gray, why does nobody like you in England? <laughs> and, and then, as himself, he gave a sort of defensive answer in which he was essentially laughing at himself. But it, it is undoubtedly true that his work has had an outsized influence within Scotland and a curiously underappreciated one in England, which is why the Burgess quote was so hugely valuable to Gray because it meant that he could tell people that he was taken seriously in England. Right? It made a huge, huge difference to the way that, that he was seen. The fact that having a major English novelist saying this book matters, there wasn't really anybody else that I'm aware of that was saying that at, at that time. Sure. I, I think also Burgess was kind of an outsider himself in England, yeah. despite, despite being English. I mean, he didn't live in in England after 1968 and he uh, very much fell outside of the literary establishment in England so the fact that that he's sort of championing Grey is it, it sort of speaks about the connection between the, the two writers I think. But it's funny you know within Scotland the, much of that detail of Burgess's personal biography or the way that he might have been perceived within the English literary establishment, all of that was just lost. You know, it was just major English writer says Scottish writer is good. Like that was, that was pretty much the headline and nearly every edition of Gray's books. And Gray did 40 books right across every form you can think of. Nearly all of them had the quote from Burgess on it because there was a, 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 always a shortage of people over the border who took Gray seriously. It's certainly his work is rooted in Glasgow in particular in Scottish culture in interesting ways. But for, for those people who are listening to this podcast in England, I don't think there's anything at all in the work that makes it difficult to read for the English. 
Nothing. I, I don't think so. Either. I mean, it's the same as an English person reading a book that's set in New York or Mumbai or, or wherever, you know. 100%. So we asked this question to everybody on the 99 Novels podcast. It's our final question. Uh, if you could pick a hundredth novel to, to round out Burgess's list, what would it be and why? Okay, well, there's about 450 books I want to put on this list, but I'm going to stick to one. And having read Burgess's introduction to his 99 novels, which I found very interesting, and he points out that some, some people get more than one. So in that spirit, I'm going to suggest another book by Gray, which is Poor Things. And Poor Things, in my view, is definitely Gray's most fun novel it might even be his best novel and it's certainly a lot more accessible than Lanark is and it's the one that for the last 25 years I've always recommended to anybody who says who is this person that you're interested in what did they write what should I read and Poor Things is like a a Glaswegian Victorian uh, creative response to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and um, it's an interesting time to recommend it because it's about to be released as a film directed by Yorgos Lantimos. He did The Lobster, amongst other things, and Emma Stone is in it, and Willem Dafoe. That will also be a creative response to Grey, and Grey himself had no influence on it before he died. But I just think it's a really interesting time to recommend Poor Things, because I believe that different versions of a story can happily exist at any given time. Lantimos's version is, in fact, he's made all the characters English. But if you go to Grey's version, there's something quintessentially Glaswegian about it, but also so playful, so fun. And uh, the way that it is laid out in terms of its visual illustration is just absolutely stunning. So Poor Things by Alistair Gray, which came out in 1992, um, actually won the Guardian Fiction Prize, the Whitbread Book Award. It was one of very few books of Gray's that was genuinely successful in England and even led to a US tour of all things. So it's funny looking back on the legacy of that book now because at the time it outstripped the commercial impact of Lanark really very quickly. But over time, the reputation of Lanark has grown so much that it's, it dominates almost everything else in Grey's oeuvre. It'll be interesting to see whether that changes again now, given that the film of Poor Things is just coming out. Thanks, Rog, for, for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion I feel we probably covered 50% of <laughs> of what makes Alistair Gray great. That's, so, that's a pretty uh, good hit rate, I think. Thank you. Thank you very much. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Alistair Gray, a secretary's biography by Rog Glass, is available now from your favourite place to buy books. The Alistair Gray Archive can be found online at thealistairgrayarchive.org. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. The theme music for the 99 Novels podcast is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor, performed by No Dice Collective. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts.